0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you're an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education credit for listening to this episode. Stay tuned at the end of this podcast for more information. My name is Maria Foy, and I will be moderator for this session. Our guests today are Tanya Uritsky, the Opioid Stewardship Coordinator at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and Stephanie Abel, the Opioid Stewardship Coordinator at the University of Kentucky Healthcare System. So today we're gonna be discussing buprenorphine. And we cannot even begin this podcast without celebrating the signing of the MAT Act which removed the X waiver as a prescribing requirement and barrier to access buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder. In celebration of this historic act, let's chat about buprenorphine and how and why we use it. Welcome everyone. So I'd like to start out by uh, with some questions for both Stephanie and Tanya. And my hometown of Philadelphia is now inundated with fentanyl in our opioid supply on the streets. So I was curious, is there any differences between heroin and fentanyl when dealing with the associated withdrawal?
1: This is an excellent question, Maria. Thank you so much for asking this. There are definitely a few very important differences and we'll cover a few of them today. I think the first and foremost is that fentanyl, as we all know, is a very lipophilic opioid. And I think that one thing that can be very confusing is that we oftentimes were taught in school, right, that fentanyl is a very short on, short off opioid. The problem is when you have a patient who's taking it at high doses chronically, because of that lipophilicity, it really likes to go to that adipose tissue and stay there, and so for that reason, it's cleared over a very long duration of time. For example, I've had patients who after time of last use, we still found it in their urine 22 days out. So we're seeing a very prolonged time frames where this opioid stays in people's system. Also, it is very potent opioid, right? So it's significantly more potent than heroin. And we also have all of these fentanyl derivatives too, that are even more substantially potent. So I think in consideration of all of that, we are seeing that most of the supply that is kind of available across the country now has either at least a little bit, if not the majority of that supply is tainted with fentanyl. So we're not really seeing a whole lot of heroin anymore um, down in Kentucky. And from what I understand, that's true for you all as well. It's primarily fentanyl as as the, the sole main opioid that people are not only injecting, but snorting and things like that. And so I think this is a very timely discussion and understanding those key differences are going to be helpful to kind of lay the foundation for why we're talking about some of these different strategies for induction today.
0: Great. So has this changed? How has this affected how we start buprenorphine and how do we dose it differently because of this?
2: So that's actually also a very good question. So um, we've been learning a lot, and uh, I do practice in in Philadelphia. And so our drug supply is exclusively fentanyl at this point, and it's even changing, right? Different metabolites of fentanyl, um, different things that are added in, so different adulterants. And so we're we're challenged by all of these constantly dynamic you know changes and things in the drug in the drug supply. So the as Steph nicely pointed out, thank you, just how um, fentanyl is different when used chronically than when it's used in single doses. We we know it's hanging around longer. When we go to give buprenorphine, which um, is a you know a partial agonist, and fentanyl being a full agonist, when we go to give buprenorphine, we run the risk of precipitating withdrawal. in um, Traditionally with heroin, when we know it would have worn off, you know, after just a few hours or worn off enough that we could safely start an induction of buprenorphine without having that risk, at least not as significant of a risk as we do now with fentanyl, because fentanyl is just there longer. Um, And so we're we're seeing that patients are at a higher risk if we're using traditional starting doses, traditional methods of starting buprenorphine, uh, just due to the presence that we have more fentanyl hanging around for a longer time. Um, so, then what it kind of translates into is, you know, people talk. And so, uh, amongst individuals, the patients are saying, coming and saying, you know, I, let's just say they got buprenorphine on the street and they had just used fentanyl recently. They started to feel some withdrawal and they got some buprenorphine and they took it and it made their withdrawal worse, right? Now they're going to be very hesitant to use that again or to have us give it to them in any capacity. Um, and so that not just that, but they may have presented to a hospital and they may have also been given buprenorphine. Or said, yeah, I want to start buprenorphine. And and they, they go ahead and did traditional induction, not realizing that fentanyl was on board or um, not being aware that it might be an issue and ending up precipitating withdrawal in those individuals. And precipitated withdrawal is extremely uncomfortable. Um, you go from mild withdrawal to extreme severe withdrawal very quickly, hard to treat and, you know, very Traumatic. So um, the patients in, are saying, I don't, I don't want to do that again. Don't give me buprenorphine, right? And it takes quite some effort if buprenorphine is really the right um, MOUD for that individual to get back to saying, Yeah, okay, you know what? I think I will try that. And we do have different ways of doing this now. So uh, there, you know, we can talk about and we will talk a lot more about low dose inductions. And how hopefully we can build trust with individuals who have experienced this before or who are fearful of starting buprenorphine um, by, you know, treating their pain and treating their withdrawal and getting them more comfortable treating whatever they're presenting with. Um, And then they'll let us work with us to start it in a safe way where they will be a lot less likely to have an instance of precipitated withdrawal. Um, So I'm going to actually stop there because I'm going to kick it back over, I think, to Steph for some discussion uh, a little bit more on on the induction methods.
0: So what other methods are available then? If, you know, we usually do traditional induction with two to eight milligrams of buprenorphine and continue to dose as as their withdrawal appears. So what's the other method then that we can use in these patients if we're worried about precipitated withdrawal?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So the the one that I'd really like to focus on kind of most today, and I think is the star of this episode, if you will, is low dose or microdosing induction. Also, it's been known to be called the Bernese method. And essentially the premise here is that you are trying to avoid precipitated withdrawal and opioid withdrawal symptoms in general by minimizing the amounts of buprenorphine that you're kind of putting on board. So I like to think of this as kind of a, a cross titration, if you will. So essentially, we continue the full agonist opioid, as well as starting these microdoses of buprenorphine. And we'll talk a bit later about what specific strategies and formulations are available to do this. Well, while we're kind of increasing our buprenorphine doses and, and very gently, if you will, kind of kicking those philaginous receptors off of the, the mu opioid receptor, we are essentially decreasing also that agonist over a period of time as well, so that it's a more gentle way of doing it. And we're really avoiding that that precipitated withdrawal. And I also wanted to make a comment that not only is this probably a better patient centered care way of doing things, because we're avoiding that physical and psychological distress and discomfort. But we also have data to show that people who have moderate to severe withdrawal symptoms due to uh, this precipitated withdrawal phenomenon actually have decreased treatment retention. And so we know that this also impacts outcomes as well. You alluded to the standard dosing therapy, so that's also, you know, a more traditional way to do it, where we essentially have patients who come in with severe withdrawal symptoms prior to initiating those doses of buprenorphine. Usually that's done with the strips or the tablets, and we kind of go between 2 and 8 milligram Um, titration schedule, assessing them every, you know, 30 minutes to two hours depending on the protocol and increasing over time generally to 8 to 12 milligrams for the first day. And so this process usually takes a few days to occur. There's also a newer phenomenon that's happening primarily in the emergency department space that is kind of driven by this premise that You know, our existing treatment guidelines, as I mentioned, within that first day of that standard induction kind of really suggest that the maximum dose per day of that subling will be bronorphine is 8 to 12 milligrams. However, for most patients with OUD these days, because of that fentanyl that's hanging around in their systems and various other reasons, we know that higher doses are required for them to have that effective agonist blockade and suppression of opioid withdrawal and craving. And so the thought process was, you know, can we create an accelerated induction protocol that achieves a therapeutic buprenorphine level in maybe a couple of hours versus two to three days? And this is especially important in the ED where, you know, we have kind of a limited window here where patients are coming through the door and they may be receptive to this, but they might also have risk factors that maybe make buprenorphine prescriptions not the best idea while they're coordinating care for the community. So for example, a patient who's homeless might not be the best candidate to go home with a prescription of buprenorphine out of the gate while we're titrating. And so this, this protocol generally involves doses that are a little bit higher than kind of the two to eight that we discussed. And in the literature and case reports, I have seen things from starting with kind of 8 to 12 milligrams, all the way up to 24 milligrams. Usually, they're reassessing their patients a little more frequently, so about every 30 minutes, and then giving those higher doses. And these protocols generally go up to 32 milligrams per day. And the thought process, again, is to increase that magnitude and duration of withdrawal and craving suppression to help them be in a better place clinically before they leave the ED and to help facilitate that transitions of care and hopefully decrease the likelihood that they're going to be lost to follow up.
0: Great. Thanks. And you gave me some criteria of this high dose induction, but what about someone walking in your door? How would you decide whether to use standard induction versus low dose? Is there like a certain patient population or um, how would you decide which one to choose? Absolutely.
1: Great question. So, really, some of the biggest things to think about are, you know, the severity of withdrawal. So, if somebody's having, you know, more on the severe side of withdrawal symptoms, and then they do have um, kind of a, a complicated dispo, if you will, they would be potentially good candidates for uh, this this higher dose induction. Additionally, if the patient isn't having any adverse effects or sequelae from their first dose, so if they kind of start on this trajectory before they move forward, then, you know, we know that they're tolerating the buprenorphine well and they're likely to do um, okay with it, then that would be kind of another checkbox that would be marked on that side. And another thing that I know is a consideration here is especially kind of those difficult transitions based on even the time that the patient presents. So for example, if they come in on a Friday night and it's very difficult for us to connect them to kind of an outpatient setting until maybe a Monday, then oftentimes that will be kind of included as a consideration to do this higher dose.
0: Great. That that helps a lot because it'd be so confusing. I mean, which one I would start which induction protocol on. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about low-dose induction and different places where you can get this done or differences between the products and how you would go about instituting low-dose induction? Absolutely.
1: So I think starting with looking at who are our candidates that would be, you know, folks who would really benefit from this low-dose induction starting there was probably a good idea just to help understand the scope. So there's a a few uh, patient factors that really come to mind for me that I would tend to think about this uh, low-dose induction being the preferred strategy. And the first is patients who have acute pain needs. Um, For example, if they come into the hospital because they were in a traumatic car accident, they've had surgery, and they're also interested in starting MOUD, we really, really would struggle to get them off these philaginous opioids that they legitimately need for that pain management. You know, we'd have to get them tapered completely off and then have them go through that destabilizing period of withdrawal. So for those patients, it's really a helpful tool to help not only continue to treat their acute pain, but also get them on an effective MOUD regimen, ideally before they even leave the hospital. So we're kind of setting them up for success, not only with their pain management, but with the treatment of their opioid use disorder. The second patient population is those who are primarily uh, fentanyl users, which as we mentioned, Really, a lot of the supply is primarily fentanyl these days. So I think some things to consider would be people who use very regularly at higher doses, and particularly those who are injecting instead of uh, maybe recreationally snorting, for example. And again, that's because of the highly lipophilic nature and that it gets sequestered. And so it's cleared so slowly from the body. There's been case reports of patients having Uh, precipitated withdrawal with with starting standard induction days and even weeks after stopping their fentanyl. So this is a a very helpful tool to get um, those patients onto effective treatment as well. And then lastly, another kind of niche population would be patients who are on methadone therapy for MOUD or maybe even they were on methadone therapy for cancer-related pain or something, and we are now transitioning them to buprenorphine management for the treatment of both their pain and um, opioid use disorder. This isn't necessarily something that's highly recommended for us to transition people who are on stable methadone, but if there are patient-specific factors that would warrant that transition, again, it'd be very medically destabilizing for them to kind of stop that methadone treatment have to take, you know, a week, potentially longer um, to wait for that withdrawal period to kick in. And then you're really concerned about things like resumption of use and kind of abandoning this swap altogether, which is very concerning for patient retention.
0: Great, thanks. I did have a patient that I had to transition off of methadone to bup because of his cardiac status. It isn't the easiest thing to do. It's easier to transition to bup to methadone but with, um, you know, I don't know about where you're at Stephanie, but in Philadelphia, oftentimes it's hard to get people into a rehab on methadone, into a drug rehab. So a lot of times, you know, they we want to try to get that buprenorphine therapy in order to get them into an inpatient rehab. Um, so thanks for all that information. That's really um, helpful. Sure, thanks.
2: I've also actually had, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to chime in. I've had to do it for TC prolongation um, a few times at least in our hospital. Uh, so that's been, a very important kind of role where we had to kind of, you know, make that transition, and we did it almost seamlessly. Actually, the very first patient that I did a low dose induction with on whatever you want whatever term you want to say was on methadone, went from methadone to buprenorphine, and I think um, it is more challenging the higher the doses of methadone. So, like this patient was on like sixty. You know, when you start getting to one hundred and twenty and two hundred and these really big doses is a much more challenging uh, situation. But I think in a hospital setting, we are fortunate because we have all the medications and we have all the monitoring. So I do think we're very, very fortunate to have these other tools. The low-dose induction is, is such an important tool now that we have it on the block. So thank you guys for exploring that and explaining that so nicely.
0: Yeah, my methadone patient was 120 a day. And it did. I did have to slow the buprenorphine induction taper slow a little bit due to withdrawal symptoms. But because we had able to do that in hospitalized setting with all those meds for symptom management, it really went fairly smoothly considering it, you know, it took a little bit of time. So um, it can be done. (laughs) So, um, you know, we're talking about people coming in and and looking at their level of withdrawal before we know whether to start buprenorphine. So how would you know when to start it? Um, Is there tools that we can use? And do you see anything else that may complicate your withdrawal situations?
2: That's a great question. Thank you, Maria. Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated is like the underlying <laughs> theme here. Um, it's getting more and more complicated as we go, but we typically will measure, you know, a level of withdrawal using the clinical opiate withdrawal scale or the cows um, as commonly referred to. And so Um, That, you know, takes into account a lot of different physiologic and um, physical presentation type symptoms that is rated. um, And then the higher, obviously, the higher the score, the more severe the withdrawal. So we typically, at least in our protocols, we have identified a score of 13 as where we start to translate into moderate withdrawal. And so we we use that as our our clinical decision point of whether to do a low-dose induction or to start lower doses of buprenorphine versus to go a little bit higher. Um, so when I say lower, like microgram doses versus like two milligrams of buprenorphine, we've basically gone away from starting for the four milligram uh, dosing for most patients. Um, I, I, and Steph spoke really nicely about the macro dosing. I don't work in the ED, but I know some of our ED practitioners have done that on occasion for some of those patients who do not have that um, the time or the place where they can go and do this in three or four day induction. Um, so we will again use the the opiate withdrawal scores to understand kind of how severe their withdrawal is. We don't ever want them getting to scores like 36, right? They're really high numbers, and that's not that's not something where someone's gonna stay for the most part. They're pretty much miserable and they're they're trying to get relief of that very quickly. Um, so other things that are complicating things are obviously polysubstance use. And in the area where I am practicing Maria as well. Uh, just about everything is polysubstance use nowadays because uh, of the adulterant xylosine being in the, the drug supply. Um, and xylosine is you know, a horse tranquilizer or a large veterinary animal tranquilizer that uh, was actually started to be studied in humans and was stopped because of all the intolerances and severe adverse effects like hypotension and um, very large wounds that were not uh, ideal. So now we're seeing a lot of wounds and wound care management that is needed. And so there's a significant amount of pain. Um, uh, related to these wounds, in addition to then a withdrawal syndrome. Xylosine, being primarily an alpha 2 agonist, has an alpha 2 agonist type of um, withdrawal syndrome, but it also has other receptors that it hits too that I think uh, it's very uh, we're not well understood, right? Not well studied in humans. And, and so we see agitation, anxiety, other things that can really complicate even our measurement of opiate withdrawal. Um, and it may even falsely elevate our opiate withdrawal because we're seeing you know it due to a different substance but unable to figure out which one that is so um, that has made it very interesting we you know we use clonidine as able of course the vital signs can limit us on that um, if patients are going to critical care settings we'll use dexmedetomidine. Um, i've had, if it's really refractory people will use adivan or uh, you know different benzodiazepines they also um, I've had some good success in refractory cases of using things like olanzapine or quetiapine uh, to really kind of get people to settle down. It doesn't have to be for long term, but it has, has helped people stay to get through those severe symptoms. Um, and then finally, of course, there's you know, benzodiazepine or alcohol withdrawal too. So people are presenting with concomitant substance use disorders uh, that we have to manage. And so I co-manage most of those with our psychiatry group. Um, but you know obviously, you're using C- CWAS scale in the alcohol withdrawal and or benzodiazepine withdrawal group although that's a little more complicated, um, you know, we'll do a lot more clonazepam or valium or longer acting benzos to avoid some of those ups and downs. Um, and we've even had to, you know, reach for all of our, our more stronger medications. Some of the times that we've had to people on phenobarbital you know, as well um, in order to stabilize uh, the symptoms. And so, you know, it depends on how much the person's using, of course, and that's probably a whole other talk here. So uh, I think you just have to be aware that these other substances are around and, and ensuring that we're checking with people, not just with the reporting, but that we're getting your drug screens to confirm what people are actually using so that we can help safely manage um, their withdrawal so that we can address all of the substances as best as possible. But it is surely complicated.
0: It truly is. And there's so many different buprenorphine products out there. So Stephanie, um, just switching back, like how do you know which products to use? Can you, do you just use one or is there multiple different ways to use buprenorphine in order to do a low dose induction?
1: Absolutely. And I think something that you've kind of alluded to is that we do have lots of tools at our disposal Um, None of these things are FDA approved for these indications. And so oftentimes where we find people being especially creative is in the inpatient setting where we're not having to worry about insurance coverage of these products. And I'll give you a few examples. So in addition to kind of our standard sublingual products that we all are fairly familiar with at this point, there's also a lot of protocols on the inpatient setting that use buccal formulations and specifically things like Belbuca, where you kind of start dosing with maybe 150 to 300 micrograms, and then you increase that dose over a period of time. And again, you know, you're, you're giving that opioid at the same time and kind of cross transitioning those Another really helpful tool is the transdermal patch, which again is only approved for pain management. And and you can start patients on either the 10 mics per hour or the 20 mics per hour patch, and kind of let that uh, get into a steady state rhythm, provide something that's consistently on board, and then continue to give them some buprenorphine doses above and beyond that before you were to take the patch off. Depending on the protocol, that's usually somewhere between, you know, two days into potentially even a week. And then there are, are also groups who, you know, don't have access to either of those options on the inpatient setting yet. And so there are also some case reports of folks successfully using the IV formulation um, dosed periodically, so about every six hours, and looking at kind of the bioavailability between what are sublingual products, transdermal products, and the buccal formulations would be um, versus the IV, that seems to be something that has has been able to be a successful strategy for those institutions that don't necessarily have those other options on their formulary as of yet. And to that point, I mentioned a little bit earlier that, you know, we are able to be a bit more creative on the inpatient setting to do this. In the outpatient setting, you can certainly utilize the microdosing strategy as well. Oftentimes, because of those insurance barriers, since it's not an FDA approved indication, and you often would be prescribing kind of an oddball amount of these things, people oftentimes will suggest essentially cutting the strips into smaller pieces, right? So you might take a two milligram strip and cut it into quarters. I've even heard of eighths um, being used. I think the risk that you run with that is, you know, can you guarantee uniformity among all of the strips? Probably not necessarily. I know that there's some studies looking at that. It's not manufacturer recommended, so that's to clarify why we don't do that on the inpatient setting. And also, there was a very interesting study that looked at you know not only kind of dosing uniformity, but the capability of our patients to actually cut things into equal pieces. And so, when you're talking about cutting up something into eights, you know their their dosing distribution is going to be a little bit different. However you know, getting them on a regimen, even if it's not perfect, dosing is still very important. And so this has been a very helpful tool that I've seen a lot of people use successfully on the
0: outpatient setting. Great. Thanks. And you're talking about actually giving, you know, full dose agonists while you're doing a low dose induction. So how would you know how much of the full dose agonist to give? And what do you do on the outpatient side for continuing the full dose agonist?
2: So um, just to clarify, so when we're doing a low dose or a micro induction, um, we do need to ensure that the patient is also still on some level of full opioid agonist uh, during this process. And so, um, you know, different protocols that do different things. Some continue that a full dose of agonist until, you know, 12 to 16 milligrams of buprenorphine has been achieved and then stop it or rapidly taper it. Others kind of do a cross taper where, you know, doses of buprenorphine go up and doses of full agonists go down. Um, In the inpatient setting where I practice, um, many of our patients present with a comorbid pain situation. So, you know, severe wounds, cellulitis, osteomyelitis, you name um, it's painful. And so we are using full agonists to stabilize the patients to treat their pain as well. Um, And because of the potency of fentanyl, we need these medications because we cannot adequately treat their withdrawal with, you know, 30 or 40 milligrams of methadone. Um, So we we do need to stabilize them in some way. And then we've been using things like oxycodone or hydromorphone or other things that, you know, on an escalating basis, we do have a protocol on which we start, you know, we actually start with 20 of oxycodone um, but other places start with OxyContin or higher dosing. Um, we start here because we have an escalation protocol. You know, every bag of fentanyl is a different bag of fentanyl. And so you can't ensure that each is exactly a certain number of milligrams of fentanyl in that bag. And I say milligrams of fentanyl, there's a lot, it's a lot of fentanyl in a bag, even though it's not all fentanyl. So um, people can come to us using a bundle, which is about 14 bags or two bundles is what they report. Um, You know, I want to be sure that they are really using two bundles. I don't want to just say, hey, I'm going to give you a whole ton, and, you know, maybe they weren't really taking as much as they thought they were. Um, So just starting somewhere and going up is how we do it. Uh, If patients do report those higher dosing needs, like that they are using bundles of, you know, fentanyl a day, we will typically recommend to start with a PCA just for ease of titration, ease of staffing burden, you know, easier ability for the patient to interact with that that pump to get what they hopefully need to treat their pain and or withdrawal symptoms. Um, and so that's kind of what we're, we're starting with. And then almost all of our patients will start an MOUD either at the time of the full agonist starting or at some point along the course of their hospitalization, you know, they'll build enough trust, they'll feel well enough to come around to saying yes, methadone or yes, buprenorphine. And then we can start an induction of either one um, and kind of and kind of go from there. So that's um, treating both pain obviously and and the withdrawal that most of these patients are presenting with in the ambulatory setting patients will still be using for the most part so they're going to continue to use you know however they feel they need to use during that induction so if they're cutting strips um and working their way up over the course of five days whatever you know the outline is for their individual protocol then over that time kind of naturally the, their recreational use should kind of fall off um, and they'll work with their outpatient provider to obviously wean that if that's needed um, because there is other set, behavioral things, things that may need to be addressed during that time to help the patient you know, fully stop using their recreational supply. So um, I think there's lots of different ways to do it, but we've definitely seen success on the full agonist um, approach. I think you have to be mindful that um, you know, first of all, these patients are very tolerant. And so giving full agonists at the doses I'm talking about generally is not very sedating um, and because they're already super tolerant. But you want to monitor for that. You know, you don't want to say this is safe just because they're super tolerant. So keeping in mind the risk of, of over sedation is always important in just monitoring, um, but not preventing yourself from, you know, dosing appropriately as a result of being fearful of that. Um and then I think the other kind of split the other side to this whole thing that um, is the challenge in the full agonist world is tapering off. So once you have the patients established on it and you, even if you get them on it, you know, you've been working and in, in, in they're set up, it is a psychological challenge to stop <laughs> something that you feel you really need. So uh, I think a lot of support will engage our you know, clinical recovery specialists, work with the teams, get our social workers involved with many uh, different people as we can to support the patients who are, who are you know trying to, of course, uh, engage in recovery and hopefully maintain it. So um, that's kind of my experience. And when we did this, uh, well, we did, well, I've been doing this for almost two years, but when we started this, we did look at the patients initially that we started kind of increasing our full agonists on. And um, we now, we have some very descriptive data about that. Yeah, we were able to keep patients a little bit longer. So less patient-directed discharge overall, uh, a little bit longer length of stay to get what they need. And then um, because of the pharmacist intervention, they were going home with Narcan, which was a huge, huge, huge harm reduction uh, and highlights the role of the pharmacist, uh, which is really important, of course. Um, and then also that um, overall, most of our patients, more than twice of the patients, they were their own controls. So, more than they were twice as likely to go home on an MOUD or to leave on an MOUD than if they did not get stabilized on something to keep them in the hospital. So I think there is a value. We just wanna be mindful that you're not gonna titrate forever and never take the patients off of this stuff. It really has to be an exit strategy.
0: That's great. And I agree that the exit strategy, a lot of times setting up those realistic expectations at the beginning of the taper can be um, really good. And especially when you develop that trust, they trust that it's worked for other patients in the past and it can work for them. So, you know, that's all the time we have today, guys, and thank you to our guests for a great topic, great discussion today. And for our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education credit by visiting elearning.ashp.org podcast. Please note that the credit for this podcast will expire two years after the date that it is published. And finally, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out the member exclusive offerings on the ASHP website, including resources centers for ambulatory care, critical care, nutritional support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. And if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP official through your favorite podcast provider and see you again next time. And thank you again, guys, for a great discussion. Thank you for listening to ASHP official